we are back with brand new episodes of Talk To Me, and I couldn't be more excited to share with you today's guest. We've got the incredible Australian author, Will Kostakis. Stay tuned, don't go anywhere. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Benjamin Mayer McKay's Talk To Me. It has definitely been a while since we've put one out, and that is purely uh, COVID-related. We had always intended, as we told you last year, to take a little bit of time off in uh, in the early stages of the year, uh, January, February, we all often have off so that uh, I can perform at the festivals as I, as I normally do. But then as I got, uh, got around to start recording again in March, COVID hit. Now, we even had some really exciting live podcasts planned for uh, Melbourne, Canberra and Brisbane, but sadly, those didn't get to happen. Uh, we do intend to bring the show on the road again with some incredible live guests at at a different point in the future. But for now, I'm so lucky that we're going to do a mini season this year. So we're not going to put out 20 or 30 episodes like we normally might. We're going to have about 10 episodes across the remainder of the year. And I'm going to be talking to some people who I think are really, really interesting, really, really wonderful, and obviously all creative entertainers. And today's guest is the incredible Will Kostakis. I met Will uh, working at Supernova. He was one of our lovely guests about a year ago. And uh, he's a wonderful guy. He's written some great books. And I did have a chance to read his new novella, The Greatest Hit. Uh, as well, which is really, really wonderful. But sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with Will Kostakis. Here it is. Welcome to the show, Will, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Now, obviously, uh, very strange times we're living in at the moment uh, with the COVID-19 crisis. And this is the first podcast that I've recorded in in the COVID world, uh, which is why we're not face-to-face. We are over the internet. Mm -hmm. How have you been keeping in these unusual and unprecedented times? Uh, terribly. My brain feels like it's melted (laughs) and there's the pressure to be as productive as I've always been without doing the things that actually recharge and refuel me and inspire me. So that's been totally rubbish. And I just released a book uh, during the pandemic and turns out not a wise move. (laughs) (laughs) That's the sound of me crying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's what I go to sleep listening to every night. <laughs> um, oh. But you have actually written a novella in quarantine, so you, you can't have been that unproductive. Well, that's the thing. I wrote the final three drafts of Rebel Gods mm. uh, in quarantine, and then I wrote, between those drafts, I wrote drafts of The Greatest Hit, which is the novella that releases very soon. And when you don't have the regular stimuli that, you know, inspire writing, h- how can you actually think of a new story? I, I get editing and revising Rebel Gods, but coming up with something entirely new must have been a bit of a challenge. It was, but I knew it was going to be my return to contemporary fiction. And I'm one of those authors who is adamant, probably to a fault, uh, that my stories should be written primarily for teenagers first. So none of this, like, I'm going to write a story set in the 90s where no one has mobile phones because that's easier for me to write and is reminiscent of my childhood. None of that stuff. And so I asked myself, what is this? what are teenagers living through? What is their world like now? And, you know, COVID was inescapable. And I knew at some point I would feel compelled to write about this because every author feels compelled to, you know, 
immortalize their experiences of everything in some small way. And so I wanted to get my COVID story out of the way uh, as quickly as possible. And this was an opportunity for that. And so The Greatest Hit is split across two timelines. You've got uh, Tessa, five years in the future. Uh, She reunites with somebody who she had... I don't want to say it was a torrid love affair. <laughs> it was just a sweet, um, it was just like a something larger than a crush during COVID. And it's sort of, it's the back and forth between the past and the present. Um, and yeah, I really felt compelled not only to capture this moment uh, in a way that wouldn't fatigue the readers to re-experience on the page, but also to imagine a future where we weren't worrying about this anymore. Mm. And, I, and I have read it. And uh, one of the things that struck me was that uh, in five years in this world, people are going to bars again and, and being able to be in university classes that are, that are supposedly full and all of those things. And I did think that's a nice little f- fictional outlook on uh, the state of affairs. <laughs> Look, I, I had to. I think for my mental health and for everybody's <laughs> mental health, I couldn't be like, hey, guess what? It's still here. Yeah. Oh. I get that. It is a very cute and lovely, like I hate using the word lovely, but it is a really nice read as well. Like I, I felt warm and, and fuzzy inside and, and you somewhat know me. Well, I'm not a warm and fuzzy person. And you know me, I'm occasionally warm and fuzzy, but that's not my default <laughs> and especially not my default in quarantine where I'm sort of bitter. I can't do half of the things that I want to do. Um, so, but I felt like it was appropriate for the story and I think it was, I'm one of those people where what I write sort of affects my mood. Mm. And so if I write something dark and bleak, then I turn into somebody who is dark and bleak. But if I write something that trends towards hope and something that's lighter and funner, um, then that lifts me up as well. And so the greatest hit was an antidote for me this year and I hope that it does the same for people in November. Yes, tell us about the release date and the details where uh, listeners, not just in Australia, but worldwide going to be able to get their hands on it. Oh, you say worldwide like it's going to be released worldwide. So well, it's, Amazon, um, people can buy things on the internet. <laughs> um, so uh, you can buy it from the back of my car. I'll just have, I'll be in an abandoned parking lot. Is that COVID no safe? Be, it'll be COVID safe and there'll be stacks of books. No, it's, it's in partnership with uh, Australia Reads, which um, your Australian listeners uh, may remember it as Australian Reading Hour, but it's been rebranded as Australia Reads, and I was fortunate enough to be asked to be one of the ambassadors, and so I'm the teen ambassador, and uh, I was asked to write a book to engage teenagers, get them sort of reading. Um, and so it's a $3 novella that is available for a very, very limited time. And while, yes, it is available from online retailers, if you are in Australia and it is safe for you to go out and purchase books in person, I would really appreciate you visiting sort of your local independent bookseller uh, because, you know, they've had a really, really tough year this year. And I think the more foot traffic they can get and the more people are in there and buying uh, books from them, 
really the better. So it is one of, I think, four special Australia Reads books. Uh, Mine is the one aimed at teens and people who like reading about teens, and it is released at the end of October for November. All right, that's going to be very exciting, and I will post a link to that in the show notes of this podcast when that comes out so listeners can get their hands on it. Uh, But you obviously write for young people, but when you first published a book. You were a young person yourself. You were 19, I think, oh, when your first book yes, came out. published at 19, and you can tell that it was written by a 17-year-old boy because it was just boob joke, boob joke, fart joke, typo. Like, it was <laughs> it was not the finest piece of literature, but it still, it occupies a very, very small part of my heart. Uh, yeah, it's called Loathing Lola, and thankfully it is very difficult for people to find copies of. <laughs> I know, because I looked and I couldn't find one anywhere. Oh, great. <laughs> it's actually, this is actually, this month is the 10-year anniversary of it going out of print. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a milestone, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not sure it's one that should be celebrated, but it is a milestone. Uh, <laughs> oh, terrible. But how, how does one land a book deal at 19? So basically he sends books off from the end of year seven, gets rejection letters steadily throughout all of high school, and then bored in the back of his library uh, in year 12, he guesses every publisher in Australia's email address and sends them a book. And um, two of them reply saying they would like to read it. Um, But the thing is when he sends them the pitch for the book, He changes the idea, but doesn't tell them that he's changed the idea. So they asked to read a book that doesn't exist. And so he randomly, well, not randomly, he rushes to write, you know, 10 pages, sends them off thinking it'll take them six months to get back to him. And then they get back to him that afternoon saying they'd like to meet him with the whole book. And he just basically tries to keep two steps ahead of them until they give him a publishing deal. So it's basically lie and cheat and you too can achieve your dreams at a young age. Lion sheet to achieve your dreams. To achieve your dreams at a young age, that's a, that's a hell of a slogan. I like it, though. Um, yeah, well, look, I, I do what I can to inspire the youth. <laughs> and now Australian publishers have very strict submission guidelines when it comes to online submissions. So I like to think I was a pioneer in that respect. <laughs> <laughs> um, and obviously then that passion for writing existed from a very young age. Yeah, way too early. Way too early. <laughs> All right, what, is, what does that mean? What does way too early mean? Well, it was, I was, I think, five or six, and I was mm. like, yep, this is it. This is going to be me. I'm going to be an author. I would hold sort of copies of Morris Gleitzman books, you know, imagine my face over his face, mm. and um, and it would just be like, Wilkes Darkus, nine-year-old author, so much so that when I got a book deal at 17, I was disappointed that it took so long. Oh wow, that's uh... that's a that's a window into the kind of child I was. Obviously, buckets of fun to be around. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that. Uh, yeah. So... so yeah, it was it was something I always wanted, and people always ask where did that sort of come from. And every time, you know, I tell the story, it ends up I end up going back further and further in time. And I've now hit the point where I've realized where it all came from. And it was, look, my my grandparents came over from Greece. You know, they could speak Greek, but they couldn't write it because their educations were interrupted by World War II. And, you know, they 
wanted their children and their children's children to be literate because they know how difficult it was living in a country where they barely spoke the language and couldn't write it. And so my grandfather was a cleaner and he would wait outside news agencies before they opened. Mm. And um, once they did, he would rush in, you know, Greek man on a mission, buy a stack of exercise books. And then after we'd eaten breakfast, he would put them down on the table and he would say, write. And he would watch us writing. And I honestly, if I had to pick a moment when my author journey began, like that was it. And look, he's, he's no longer around, but you know, I share his first name. And so I like to think that I, I carry him with me a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's, that's a really nice and genuine sort of approach to, to becoming a writer as well. I, I enjoy that. That was, that was my one nice, heartwarming, warm answer. And the rest are going to make me look like a dumpster fire of a human being. So. All right. The true identity of Wilkes Starkus. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of a dumpster fire, you also were a celebrity journalist or something for a period of time. <laughs> oh, okay. Why did I clap? This is a podcast. Okay. So, no, why? Oh, just stop it. <laughs> My brain doesn't work. It's it's the, but we're not even in lockdown, but it still just doesn't work anymore. But anyway, I'm not used to talking to people. Um, yes, I used to work for Channel 9. I got my start there when my friend worked there. He, we became friends because he read my first book and was like, oh, Will is kind of catty. He could probably write for this caddy celebrity website that Channel 9 ran. Mm. And so, you know, our job was to take articles off the internet and rewrite them to then post. It was just copy-pasting. And then so long as you said, according to so-and-so, no one could sue you for saying something defamatory. Or at least that's what we thought at the time, until I got a cease and desist letter from Arnold Schwarzenegger's lawyer, which was a whole thing. Um, but my other, the other half of that job was writing for the websites for The Block, Celebrity Apprentice, The Voice, and Big Brother. And my big claim to fame is there was one year where all those shows were on at the same time and I was the only person putting content up and all that sort of stuff. And I may have accidentally set live a video announcing the winner of Celebrity Apprentice a day before the episode actually aired. So I put up the final five minutes of the episode and went home. 96 people streamed it. So nobody noticed it by the next morning. But one of those people worked at News Limited. And so they ripped the video. They put up an article with the headline, Someone Will Be Fired, which always annoyed the hell out of me because I was in my early 20s and I was, they would have known that the person who made that mistake was a very, 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 very junior reporter. Mm. And instead of a quick, oh, hey, you guys have stuffed this up, they went for maximum impact and it was just sort of a tit for tat between News Limited and Channel 9. And yeah, there was no, there was no benefit to that journalism. There was no, there was no reason why it should be the top ranking story on News Limited for an entire day and sort of being like, oh, let's joke about this junior reporter getting fired. Like, that's really fun. Like, it's just, it left a really sour taste in my mouth. And that was, it was literally about two or three months before my novel, The First Third, came out, which was my big comeback after the failure of the first book. 
And honestly, I have never looked back at journalism ever since. And my degree has been collecting dust since then. <laughs> <laughs> Much like most obsolete journalists. Not that, not that my sort of degree was getting much of a workout at Channel 9. Let's, let's be fair. Like, ghostwriting reviews for Richard Wilkins, not the most, you know, fulfilling thing. <laughs> fair, yeah. Um, now, one interesting thing uh, that I, I would like to just you know, bring up and, and ask you about is between, I think, your first and second books, you came out. How did that change how audiences received you or, you know, how willing schools were to let you come in and talk to young authors? So it was actually between my second and my third books. Okay. But it's so my first book was Loathing Lola. That disappeared. Then I got rebranded from William Kostakis to Will Kostakis because that second syllable in my first name confused everybody. So the first third was released um, by Will Kostakis and that was like, oh, that young author, he's better at sentences now and he's also super Greek. And so that was really, really embraced, which was lovely. And I put more of my queerness into that book in a really subtle way because I wasn't out at the time to anyone. Like I was very much in the sort of sneaking around phase of liking boys. Hmm. And, but, you know, my confidence grew. I went from early 20s to mid 20s. Um, so that was like, almost in my mid-teens in gay years. <laughs> and at that point, I was like, yeah, I'm sort of a grown-up. And as I was writing The Sidekicks, which, you know, involved a character who was coming out, I then became more confident and more at ease with my queerness. And also I built up the courage to actually tell more people around me. Um, and so, you know, I came out and it was widely ignored on social media until a school that I'd spoken at before um, that had volunteered to host a book launch for my new book, which just meant me going in for free and just talking to kids about the love of reading and writing. Um, they then rescinded that offer saying it was no longer appropriate for me to talk about uh, my new work um, because of my blog post, which was me coming out. Didn't even say the word gay. That was how, like, I was one of those, you know what, I'm going to be a respectable gay. I'm not going to say the word. I'm just going to gently imply it and I'm going to be sort of like that was it. Like if I said the word gay, my voice would shake. Um, that was how comfortable I was in myself. And then um, they went nuclear and then I sort of, I posted, their, I posted their email, redacted sort of everything they said, and then I posted my reply, which was a nice, gentle, oh, maybe, maybe, I'm not going to ever come back and speak at your school, but, you know, well done to you sort of situation. Mm. And uh, that there were several schools that almost immediately cancelled um, gigs that I had planned with them because, you know, they were just sort of worried about this super political figure um, being sort of talking to kids and by that they meant a gay, um, <laughs> which was really hurtful because I'd sort of built over almost 10 years, I'd built my reputation as somebody who spoke at schools and taught kids creative writing. And then suddenly I was being treated like a sex offender. Um, thankfully, a lot of the kids in those schools, when they found out I was no longer allowed to speak, they kicked up a stink and got me invited to most of them, which was really awesome. 
Um, but that's the thing. I was in the middle of a media storm for two days, couldn't use my phone at all. And then it all sort of petered off and, you know, I was still getting schools cancelling my gigs months later, but I had realised that if I kept saying people were cancelling my gigs, I would just be the person who had their gigs cancelled instead of the person who had gigs. And so I made a conscious effort to stop shining a spotlight on basically schools being shitty Hmm. and instead just really make it clear when a school wasn't. Slowly but surely, it took about six or seven months, um, and then sort of everyone realised I I wasn't a deviant, or at least I wasn't a deviant in front of children. You know, shocking that. And um, everything was sort of back to normal, but the damage was really done. I had sort of been reframed in everybody's mind instead of instead of being this sort of you know, mild-mannered author who inspired kids to read and write, I was the gay author. And instead of, you know, being able to talk on panels about sort of, you know, my craft, it was always talk about gay stuff. And suddenly, you know, three books into my career, I was shoved into a box, even though I was never in that box to begin with, Um, which was, it was frustrating because everyone seemed to forget everything else about me. But at the same time, it was the best for my personal development. I became so comfortable saying the word gay, uh, especially in public. Um, And I just became so much more sure of myself and my identity. Uh, That book, though, while the attention helped it out, you know, in the first few weeks of release, it also sort of stuffed it up in the long term because this book that I had written about the relationship I had with my best friend who passed away in high school, it was a book about grief and it was about capturing our complicated relationship that then became the gay book. So there were certain schools that wouldn't put it on their shelves. And on the flip side, I had, you know, gay readers reading it going, this isn't gay enough. And so it was too gay on one end and not gay at all on the other. And so it was a book that pleased no one because the way that they were pitched it was this controversial, sexy book when they really just got, you know, one third of it is a kid's awkward coming out. And, but overall the story is about dealing with loss. Um, so that, that was frustrating. And it's only now that people are starting to have conversations about the book that are centered on grief and not any of the other stuff. Um, but I guess that's what happens with new release books. You find the conversation about it and you sort of cling to it until people buy it. Um, but yeah, I've realized I've been waffling. So I'm going to say one thing and then shut up. But basically I had those complicated feelings of, you know, I'd written this book about my best friend and then all people would talk about the book was me being gay. And they weren't talking about him in the same way they spoke about my grandmother when they read the first third that was heavily implied by her, not implied by her, inspired by her. And so, but the thing was, when he died, he hadn't come out to us and he wasn't comfortable sort of coming out to us and I wasn't comfortable coming out to him. And so if ever 
there was a book that was going to be overshadowed by my queer identity, that's kind of the one to do it. And if it's if it inspires a kid to live more authentically and live more openly, then, you know, forget what happened to me and, you know, the media storm and the schools being rubbish, that that was rough. But if it helps, you know, a few kids to come out to people that they love while they still have them in their lives so they don't have to live with that heavy regret, then it's all been worth it. Yeah. I, f- I, I get that. I feel that. I just, what year, just for our listeners, what okay. year are we talking about? And that's the thing. It was 2016, which wasn't that long ago, no. but it was, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, we have seen this rapid change, especially as I've toured school. So my first book came out in 2008. You know, in 2006, I don't know what it was like when you graduated, but, you know, when I graduated <laughs> school in 2016, there was one very gay kid on campus, but he had a girlfriend, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. And so that that was it. And yet, um, you know, fast forward five or six years, you saw things like we're at Purple Day and school sort of, trying to begin those conversations, especially in the libraries, um, making libraries safe spaces for queer teenagers. Then you had 2016 was when, the beginning of 2016 was when stuff was really hitting the fan about whether we should have a plebiscite or not. Hmm. And so everything was being weaponized in the culture war. And um, I guess my book was sort of collateral damage in that respect. And then, you know, as silly an idea and as wasteful and expensive as the plebiscite was, that was sort of the nail in the coffin of, oh, okay, you know, this is actually going to become quite mainstream quite quickly. And since then, I've seen schools incorporating um, uh, queer straight alliances. I've seen schools, you know, actually realising harmful attitudes towards LGBTQIA plus students is really bad for their mental health and maybe, you know, the school's primary stakeholders are the students and not these imaginary parents that we're worried about complaining about things. Um, So we've seen some really, really positive change in lots of schools, especially religious schools. It's still a bit slower um, for my tastes and I still don't think we're doing enough to protect trans kids. Um, A lot of, you know, let's face it, gay straight passing men uh, think that the job is done. They got their marriage rights. Uh, But all that venom that was directed at us a few years ago is now basically being directed at trans children. And it is really messed up. And, you know, we need to step up and sort of fight for them. Let's face it, you know, a straight white male or a gay white male was not the first person who threw a brick at Stonewall. And so, you know, this is we, you know, as much as people like to joke about LGBTQIA plus being a mouthful, like we have banded together for a reason and we can't just sort of say the job is done because we got the bare minimum, which is tolerance. Like that is... Yeah, there is a difference between tolerance and acceptance. Yeah. And, you know, you can't just because just because things are all right for you and you're accepted 
you have to make sure it is all right for absolutely everyone. Yeah, and that's before we even you know, sort of move on and look at queer people of colour who are facing a whole new level of battles as well. 100%. As a queer author, how important is it to you to write about queer experiences? Would you, you know, write a book with primarily straight characters? Of course, if I wanted it to sell. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I... I think there's always going to be queerness in my books. Um, but I don't want to, I don't just want to write the same story over and over again. Like mm. I don't want to keep writing coming out stories. Like I wrote uh, the sidekicks and I was like, great, I got that out of my system. And then when I wrote, um, when I wrote Monuments, which was the book that came out afterwards, I purposefully was like, I'm not going to write a coming out story. And the main feedback that I got from older uh, cis straight, usually librarians, was, oh, Connor was such a great protagonist, but I really wish he struggled with his sexuality more. To which I reply, wait, you wished he struggled more? Do we want to unpack that or are we just going to leave that there? <laughs> like, it's this, it's either an expectation that queer people have to struggle and that the only story we can tell is us struggling to fit in. We can't imagine lives for ourselves where we fit in um, and especially can't let queer teenagers think they fit in. And so for me, while I do think I will be writing predominantly queer stories from here on out, I don't just want to write the same queer stories, you know, in much the same way that the pandemic completely changed the kind of contemporary novel that I wrote. You know, I need to make sure that I am writing a queer story for queer teenagers now. You know, this is a world where straight guys are pretending to be gay on TikTok for clout. So, you know, it's a very, you know, that woe is me, I won't be accepted kind of gay story. Yes, it's still real and a valid experience. It's not, I don't think it's the predominant one anymore. Or at least I think that there are far more queer stories that we could be telling. And I think that the more times we tell stories of not being accepted, that in the same way that me writing a, a sad story makes me feel sad, I think us constantly writing ourselves as these sort of victims of society, that's sort of that stuff that you must internalise at some point. Like if I kept writing about nobody accepting me and sort of all my characters and working through that over and over and over again, you know, at some point I'm going to start to believe it. And if people are only reading those stories where people like them aren't accepted and they have to contemplate their space in the world, then they're not going to picture anything else for themselves. So I really think we need to start making room for and accepting that there are many different kinds of queer stories that we can tell and that, well, yes, the coming out story is important. Coming out is literally the beginning. We need to start telling stories about the middle, the end, and everything in between. Mm. And there's one series that I've always loved is the Tales of the City novels um, because mm -hmm. I think they do that so well. And I remember... 
many years ago, fighting for them to be, or at least one of them to be included on like a you know school syllable reading list or something, because those books have been around for a long time, uh, at least the mm-hmm. early ones. And, you know, it, it wasn't appropriate material, obviously, at the time. And um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, that obviously broke me then, but I think it's such uh, a wonderful thing now that, you're right. The struggle isn't the primary story. It's a story that still exists. You know, I, I've, I've been there. I've, d- I've done the struggle show. I've, d- I've done that one myself. Yeah. But you're right. The stories that should be told now need to be more diverse in, in their kinds. And, I, yeah, I agree with that. I like that a lot. But it's the funny thing here is can straight people imagine queerness as something that isn't a struggle? Like, hmm. can they do it? And if we – look, let's face it, like – my readers are not, I might be a gay man, but my readers are not predominantly gay men. So, you know, they're not out there buying books for teenagers. Um, so we just, we need to wonder, like, well, I don't think that we should be writing towards a straight audience. We need to make sure that the straight audience that is there can actually see value in queer stories that aren't doom, gloom, and trauma. Mm. And on that, though, or, or from that, do you think that straight authors should or can write authentic queer characters or, or stories? Of course they can, if they put in the research um, and actually, like, I've read... I've read queer stories that are written by queer people that are garbage, that are not well-constructed stories. And I've read stories by seemingly straight authors that feel really profound. And, you know, I don't believe that, you know, you should be a particular sort of sexuality to then write about that sexuality. But that all said... Whenever an author, usually a straight person, is like, look, I want to write a gay story. And I'm like, okay, why? Oh, because I have a really good story. And I'm like, yes, but why are you the person who has to tell this story? Why are you compelled to write this? And they're like, I feel that it's important. And I'm like, okay, cool, what happens in it? And they tell me the story, and it usually involves parents not accepting teenagers, and the culmination, the climax of the story is the queer character in the centre of the story getting the crap beaten out of them. But then learning that it's okay and they'll pick themselves up. And I'm like, right, so you've just written homophobia porn. Excellent. Right, like what's what's this doing? Mm. Right? And so in that case, I'd be like, oh, straight person? No. If you write outside your lived experience but can only imagine that lived experience involves suffering and trauma and you can't see a fully rounded human person who has wants and needs and desires, then maybe don't write that. But we're using identity as a shorthand for good or bad writing, which it shouldn't be. We should actually learn how to talk about good or bad writing, but let's face it, we don't really talk about that anymore. Mm -hmm. Even when we talk about movies, which, let's face it, more people consume movies than they do read books. Yes. We talk about what people like about movies. And, you know, these are movies that objectively aren't well written, but they elicit an emotional response. 
Mm. And we talk about texts through emotional responses, but we don't think critically about the way those texts are composed or what sort of goes on beneath them. Like, you know, I, you know, the elephant in the room, at least when we talk about authorship and the way somebody's personal beliefs infects authorship, we've got the brouhaha with J.K. Rowling um, and the pen name that was absolutely definitely a total coincidence and not at all a nod to somebody who pioneered conversion therapy. Um, You have somebody who has expressed some pretty garbage views and has been told time and time again, look, your words are kind of harmful Mm. and this is why, and you're not actually speaking from any sort of expertise. And she then writes a novel that I'll admit I haven't read, but the reviews suggest that there are lots of transphobic tropes within that book. Now, if she did that without thinking, then why on earth do we celebrate her? And if she actually thought about it and still did it anyway, knowing the harm it might cause, then definitely we should not be celebrating her. But it's, if you're going to write something, you need to think about its impact. And the good thing is we're moving away from the authors who write queer characters where it's wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This can be queer if you want. It's like for me, that is the most harmful one where the author is celebrated for having written a queer character but doesn't face any of the danger of having written a gay character. Yeah, queer basically. And Yeah. And so all that sort of stuff. And on top of that, look, do I, do I like that the most, you know, well-known book about two gay boys was written by an author many people thought was straight until a couple of weeks ago? No, that feels a bit icky. But where does that ickiness come from? A lot of the time it comes from ickiness, it comes from jealousy, it comes from bitterness, because I wish I was the person that wrote that book, let's be fair. Hmm. And the thing is, you know, for those of you that don't know who I'm talking about, it's Becky Albertalli. She has done so much to lift queer authors, far more than queer authors usually do. And what really sort of changed, I was once in the camp where it was like, look, I was completely blacklisted for writing queer content uh, as a gay man, where I wasn't sort of treated like that when I was a straight man writing queer characters because the first third featured queerness and that was acceptable. And so it is so much more dangerous to write gay characters as a gay man because then it's seen as something that's perverse, something that, you know, is trying to corrupt children. Um, And so I was once quite a hard line, you know, sort of person who was like, no, don't run outside your lived experience until, you know, writing about queer experiences as a queer person isn't damaging to your livelihood. But as I've sort of evolved over the past few years and I've seen the impact of, say, a book like Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda, which is more commonly known as Love, Simon because of the film adaptation, I've seen teenagers that 
see themselves in that book, mm. queer teenagers, trans teenagers, their lives have been transformed by that book. What, what good is me standing on the sidelines policing somebody's identity until they feel compelled to come out as bisexual? That isn't, that isn't helping the teenagers. That isn't helping the audience who I claim to be a champion for. That's just helping me. That's shoving someone else out of the limelight so I can get a piece of it for myself. When really we should be talking about the industry that, you know, seems to want to market queer novels written by straight people far stronger than they want to market, you know, queer stories written by queer people, you know, who releasing one queer novel think, okay, that's enough for the year, when really queerness is far more pervasive and it needs to be shown in far more books and in a range of books. So we seem to target certain authors and their identities when really we should be talking about systemic problems within the industry. I 100% agree with you. And uh, unfortunately, I think we've got a long way to go to address a lot of those systemic industry problems. Yeah, look, it's, we've just got to keep beating that drum in a really nice, polite way until things (laughs) change, because getting really angry on the internet does absolutely nothing. I like as much as I love it. I like, I really, really, really love it. It does nothing. No, and I'm tired. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and that is the thing. It's like you know, um, I've I've done the angry on the internet thing. I've done the angry in real life, and it's it's just tiring. Um, and yeah, yeah. Oh, my hope is that one day, collectively as a society, we'll get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, not sure. Crossed, I, yeah. Not yeah. Not sure. I always believe that, but I but I hope. <laughs> Uh, well, Will, I am going to let you go. That is that is the end of our time together today. But I do want to let listeners know you can buy Will's books, The First Third, The Sidekicks, Monuments, Rebel Gods, and the new novella, The Greatest Hit. That's out very soon. You can get them all from your bookstores. If you're in Australia, please go to an independent bookstore. And if you're somewhere where it's uh, you know hard to get out of the house at the moment, Will's books are available online as well. And where can our listeners follow you on the socials, Will? They can literally type my name into Google and they can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube wallowing in like two or three views like that. <laughs> That's just depressing. But yeah, look, I am, I am in far too many places and you will get bored of me very, very quickly. <laughs> no, I could never get bored of you. That was my chat with Will Kostakis. Now stay tuned because we've got some more incredible podcast coming out soon. We've got Tash York, Andrew Silverwood, Dean Rankin, and a whole lot more. It's a really, really great season, or mini season rather, and we hope you are all staying well and safe. Uh, If you're in America, please vote. Uh, Vote Trump out of office. We don't want him hanging around anymore. I know that we've got a lot of of US listeners, so uh, get that guy out of office while you can. Let's try and restore some sanity to the world. Uh, And if you are in a a country heavily affected by COVID, please look after yourself. Be careful. Wear a mask. Avoid doing unnecessary things. Uh, I know that when, uh, when our lockdown was here in Adelaide, I didn't leave the house for uh, about nine or 12 weeks. So, uh, you know, if I can do it, you can do it. And obviously our thoughts are with everyone in Melbourne at the moment as they enter their one millionth day of uh, stage four lockdown. Stay safe, stay home. We'll be back with another really, really exciting episode soon. I've been your host, Benjamin Mayer McKay. You can follow me on all the socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Facebook, 
I'm there. Search my name, Benjamin May McKay, and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.